It's planting season, and it's not too late to make sure your crops grow up fed and happy. Regardless of your spring crop, Fed and Happy offers a variety of worm-casting solutions in liquid and solid form to supercharge your soil, your yields, and your profitability. For fast, vibrant germination and seedling growth, mix your seed with Fed and Happy's screened granular castings pre-drilling. The Fed and Happy liquid seed treat and extracts offer the ideal mix of soluble solids loaded with living beneficial biology, mycorrhizal fungi, humates, and more. The Fed and Happy small spreadable castings are ideal for fast, easy soil incorporation. The large offer long-term stability and soil growth. But you don't have to figure this out on your own. Just call 833-GO-WORMS to speak with our farm team experts for a fast turnaround on a custom solution for your needs. Fare better against pests, disease, drought, and other potential hazards this season with Fed and Happy Worm Castings. Visit FedandHappy.com for a healthy harvest and any lawn, garden, and tree care needs. Available for pickup and on-farm delivery. That's F-E-D-N-Happy.com. Or call 833-GO-WORMS. Happy planting. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time. Together. Together. Yes, it's high time. We had a high time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. 2020 is serving up screen-worthy surprises, and the shots of personal growth, I don't know about you, but for me, they keep on coming. During these shutdown months, though, I am happy to say I've made a new friend, and he happens to be celebrating his one-year anniversary of freedom. Lorenzo Mora spent over 30 years of his life incarcerated in the state of California. On today's podcast, Lorenzo shares his firsthand account of life in the prison system, giving us a glimpse at the effects of the programmed narratives we've been fed our whole lives and the decades of pocket lining legislation that enables the prison industrial complex. You know, I believe the more we understand the impact of our action, or inaction for that matter, the more motivated we are to do our part. At least I am. And right now, I would define doing our part in the broader sense as creating an environment of inclusivity where everyone is encouraged to thrive in whatever they were born to do. That said, if you know someone whose voice needs amplifying, or if you have a message to share, please reach out to me at CasuallyBaked.com or through one of my social channels. I'm at CasuallyBaked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Today, we are celebrating Lorenzo and the unique yet universal life lessons we all face as human beings. So roll something introspective, my friend, and settle in. It's time to get Casually Baked. I got the bottle of wine. I got the West Coast smoke, but I better just take one toast. 
Lorenzo, thank you so much for joining me in the studio, socially distanced, of course, but it's nice to see a friendly face again after being gone from the Bay Area for so long. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. Well, are you glad to have me back? Yeah, very much so. (laughs) Okay. I mean, geez, was the park lonely without me or what? (laughs) It it sure was. I told you it wasn't the same. You know, I, I would go to the park, no Joanna. (laughs) So spent my time with the squirrel over there. There you go. Well, you know what? Animals make really good friends during uh, quarantine, right? Yeah, they do. So Lorenzo and I met um, in, we share a neighborhood here in Oakland, and we just kept seeing each other in the park every day. And eventually, I don't know how many weeks later, struck up a conversation and Um, Lorenzo is a drug and alcohol counselor working in San Francisco and I think maybe something in the Bay Area or in Oakland. Berkeley as a drug and alcohol counselor yet options recovery services. Yes. Okay. Right on. So to me, I thought, okay, this is curious. The one stranger that I keep seeing in my neighborhood happens to be a drug and alcohol counselor and I happen to have a show about cannabis. So I basically made him listen to my show, and then we became friends. I really, really enjoyed your show. You have a really good message, and um, it's positive, and I believe it's, it's, um, it's helpful. You know, I work in the drug and alcohol field, and, um, you know, I see a lot of individuals who are using hard, you know, drugs, narcotics, heroin, fentanyl, crack, just the whole gamut of drugs. You know, a lot of times in my... In my interactions with my clients, you know, some of them do smoke marijuana. And even though I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, I would much rather see them using marijuana than hard drugs because I truly believe that, um, for one, it's legal. Today it's legal. So it's a lot less harmful than Than the other stuff you see, of course, of course. Well, and, you know, I notice you still call it marijuana, and that probably has a lot to do with, you know, the last 30-some-odd years of your life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, being incarcerated for all that time, you know, I kind of, you know, but don't get me wrong, there's a lot of drugs in prison. I, I, you know, I used to do a lot of stuff in prison also Mm -hmm. before I got clean and sober. I was involved in that lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. I actually had, you know, a bud in prison, you know, a a lot of it Mm -hmm. and sold it and, you know, made money with it. But but I just, as a drug and alcohol counselor, I call it marijuana today. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I do. You know, I changed my, you know, I basically changed my vocabulary. It just took a lot of change in my life to just start talking differently I believe it it helps me in my in my well, sobriety and and when you say talking differently, you mean like the slang terms that you might use for drugs and the the language around the the whole drug culture, yeah, precisely, okay. yes, okay, but I think that probably serves you very well as a drug and alcohol counselor, you know, in that you speak both languages, so to speak, yeah, it does. I have a very good rapport with my clients and um, they trust me because I, I, I divulge, you know, some information to them where I came from, where I've been. And um, they seem to um, open up 
they yeah. open up and um, I'm able to, you know, get across to them and, and they trust me. They tell me a lot of things that, you know, yeah, that they will probably not tell anybody else in that field who hasn't been through that lifestyle. Right. You know, so yeah, it's, they trust it's, you. Yeah, they trust me. And so, speaking of, that's actually a good segue of, you know, who you are and where you came from. I would love for you to share your story with the Casually Baked audience in whatever way feels comfortable for you. So I'll tell you a little about myself. I remember the first time I smoked weed, I was <laughs> like 12 years old. My older brother introduced me to weed, him and a friend. And from that point, and I'll be honest with you, the first time I smoked weed, I was, it kind of took me on a trip where I was, I was not feeling too well. You got too high. Yeah, I got too high. So were you also drinking? And, no. Okay. I was okay. not drinking. I was 12 years old. I know, so but I was, so what, you're a 12 year old <laughs> just smoking a joint. You could easily have had a beer too. That's true. I think that was the next year. The next year was a beer. But yeah, that's basically my first drug was marijuana. You know, and during high school, I think um, I took acid, took mushrooms. And when I got out of high school, probably about the age 18, I experimented with cocaine. And um, I used cocaine for like two years. And then I graduated into using heroin. I used heroin for 30 years of my life. Wow. I used heroin. And um, it took me to a lot, to a, you know, very dark place in my life. You know, a lot of stuff happened. And um, I used it as an escape to just to cope with, you know, all the stuff that went on in my life. Cause I, you know, I lived a pretty, not too good life. I'll you put were it in that Los way. Angeles. I was in Los Angeles. Yeah. I was gang member, sold drugs, you know, just was involved in a lot of, lot of, lot of stuff. And, um, so it was part of the culture I grew up in, you know, my like family members, they used heroin and, you know, uncles, you know, cousins. And it was just like, something that yeah. was normal. Yeah, at my house, it was like Dr. Pepper or Coke. It's just like such this sheltered country life, and you're in fucking Los Angeles, the middle of the war on drugs and the crack cocaine heroin epidemic. Yes, yes. Like, I barely saw that shit on television. Yeah. You know, I lived that life. That was my life. I grew up in that lifestyle, and, um, you know, all the people I associated myself with that's what they did you know I was those core beliefs were instilled in me Absolutely. and and I lived those core beliefs my whole life all the way up until the age of 48 years old you know I was in prison for 32 years you know straight and during the first 24 years of my prison term you know I was in and out of the hole getting in trouble for you know violence um, drug deals and just all kinds of just the the whole gamut that's what goes on in prison. Gangs, drugs, just all kinds of different crap goes on in there. Excuse my language, but. <laughs> I think that's the tamest word that's been said on this show. Okay. So anyways, yeah, that was my life, you know, in um, 2012, October 23rd. Um, I went back to the hole for threatening staff by myself in a cell, little shoebox called administration's administrative segregation so they kept me there for six months and um in a cell by myself i was i was allowed to go out but when i did go out 
I was handcuffed in my boxers, no socks and shower shoes. And that was the way we went out of that cell to the yard, which is when you go to the yard, you're in a cage like a dog. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there has to be something better than this. Cause this wasn't my first time doing that. So, you know, I was like this, there has to be something better than this. So when I was back there, I did a lot of soul searching, a lot of, you know, introspection. And I, I just made a um, conscious choice to say, that's it. I'm going to change. I'm going to do something different. There has to be a better way. So that's what I did when I got, when they let me out of ADSEG, I went back to the main line and, um, I just gravitated towards individuals who were going to groups, you know, going to NA groups, AA groups, um, anger management groups, because all those things were issues that I had. Yeah. Anger issues, you know, gang, you know, cause they got all kinds of different groups inside prison, like for gang affiliated, just all kinds Absolutely. of different, a whole there's clubs there's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did. I just, you know, just focused on that, focused on myself. I started focusing on me. Because before mm-hmm. I was worried about what everybody else thought. Yeah. And so, we are a collection of the people we spend the most time with. So you had to cut loose your other affiliations. That's that. How did that go? That, you know, some of the, some of the individuals that I um, actually started gravitating towards when I got out of ADSEG, they were my, like some old friends of mine who used to do the same thing I did. And oh, they were, good. they were in recovery. So it was a pretty good transition. Nice. You know, it, it you worked, deserved it after all it that. It worked shit. out. It worked out. I was like, because I it was it was scary, you know, because to step away from that lifestyle sometimes it doesn't go good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was fortunate. A lot of the a lot of the guys who were in recovery, they were my old friends, and I used to use with them and everything. And so they, you know, they showed me the way. They mm-hmm. helped me through. They, you know, whatever questions I had, they helped me through. And, um, you know, one day they tell me, Hey, we want you to run the group. I was like, you gotta be, you're crazy. I'm not running no group. Cause I, I, I couldn't talk. I just, that wasn't something I did. I wasn't comfortable doing it. And, um, eventually they broke me down and I ran the group and I've been doing that ever since I've been, you know, I run groups, you know, and I ended up going to school to be a drug and alcohol counselor. I went 16 months of training, did a took a national test, passed it, and um, got my certification. And um, I worked inside the prison system in the substance abuse program. They called me a peer mentor. That's what I did, was a peer mentor. That was my title. And I would just run groups of individuals who were dealing with drug issues, you know, anger issues, um, family relation issues, just all kinds of different really good groups. Nice. So that's what I did. And um That felt way better, didn't it? Oh, that felt great. If it, it felt really great to be able to give back instead of taking, because I took my whole life. You know what I mean? And my whole like I actually found a purpose in life because people were even the guys in there, they were, you know, they respected what I was doing. They were like, you know what, you've been through all this stuff and you turned your life around. So, you walked the walk for them. Yeah. Exactly. I walked for yourself and for me when, when I started doing it for me, it felt a whole bunch better. You know, it felt great. It felt really great. And, um, you know, my family, they're just really proud of me. You know, my mom, my mom, you know, she just loves the fact that, you know, I'm out here 
back in society, working two jobs, you know, just being responsible, being the responsible person she knew I could be. Yeah. So, you know. She's so proud. Yeah, she's proud of me. And that, you know, that feels, that feels great. It feels great. I love it. You spent over 30 consecutive years in prison. So you saw, witnessed, lived through all of the insane changes that were happening. You know, when you and I um, were communicating while I was gone, I had asked you if you'd watched the Netflix documentary 13th that's talking about the 13th Amendment and the criminalization of African Americans and the U.S. prison boom. So I'm watching this thing and just my jaw is dropping when I see the numbers go from like when I'm born in the 70s, there were 357,000 something prisoners. And then by 2014, there were 2.3 million prisoners in the prison system. And so Bill Clinton's crime bill of 1994, like you're in I'm prison. I'm in prison. So I want to know what life was like before the insanity and then after the commoditization of humans behind bars. So I'm going to tell you about it. So when I first, my first time in prison, it was in 1985. So this was the this time I went back. This time was the third time I had been to prison. And in 1985, I can report that there were 759,000 prisoners. Yeah. So that's that's where it was when you entered into the system. And that's nationwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, you know, I, I watched it change. I watched the prison system change drastically. You know, there was a time when when I first went in. Um, the population was small. Like, you know, it wasn't a lot of people, you know, you, um, had room to move around. They fed you really well. They had everything. Everything was available. And, and when you say everything was available, you're saying the things to meet your basic human needs. Exactly. And, and a little more, they had, you know, hobby shops used to be able to go to the hobby shop, an actual hobby shop, make wood crafts, make ceramics, and those are important things. Those were important things because a lot of guys would make, you know, clocks and jewelry boxes or, or ceramic clocks. And um, they would send them home to their loved ones, you know, for gifts and all that. So that was really important. And they would put them out in the visiting room for um, sale mm-hmm. to people coming in. They would be able to buy them. Mm-hmm. So there was a source of income. Mm-hmm. And um, once once the prison system started booming, just a lot of more people start coming in. All those programs went away. They all went away because they didn't have the funding. Well, all of the funding was going to building more prisons. It was all going to build more prisons, precisely. So the food went down, all the activities. Like, you know, they used to have really good softball equipment, really good, you know, handballs all the time, weights. And Mm -hmm. that even went away. The weights, they took all the weights in 1996. Because they said that the felons that were getting out of prison were too big, too strong. And it was because they were going in there and we were feeding them really good and they were working out with weights every day. That was their reasoning. They were too healthy entering society. They were society. too healthy to enter back into society because they said they were well, coming out and victimizing people. But that's the whole issue with the whole thing is 
the fear of dissent from, you know, the people of color or the prison population. Yes, that's exactly, I believe that's exactly what it is. You know, people see Hispanics, Blacks, you know, coming out of prison, and there's a lot of whites in there too, don't get me wrong, and they were coming out big and strong too. And um, I guess, you know, there was, it was instilling a lot of fear in people. And they, they put it on a ballot to take our weights from us, and it went through. And they one day we woke up, and all our weights were gone. So, well, and I know I know you still all worked out. So how'd you get crafty? What'd you make oh, weights out of? Oh, well, you know what? They did allow us to, to do dips. They left the dip bars out there, the pull-up bars. So everybody just basically started doing that. Dip, but yeah, baby, dip. The, yeah, dip, dip, <laughs> dip, push up. And... Yeah, they would make weight bags out of water, water bags, and, you mm-hmm. know, just craft all kinds of different ways to, you know. And if you had the luxury of working in the industries, which that's another thing I want to talk about, because I, in that 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 documentary? that documentary, they talk about the how the industries in prison, how they exploit, you know. Oh, the, yeah, it's, because it's it got written into the 13th yeah, Amendment. It's expect, it's ex, it, yeah. They exploit you, put it that yes. way. In the 13th Amendment, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, and this is the clause, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, comma, shall exist within the United States. Yeah. So it's like you become an indentured servant when you are imprisoned. When you're, yeah, when they, when you get tagged as a felon, a lot of stuff goes away, like, my voting rights is gone. I have a lot of my rights are gone, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that changes and I'm able to vote, at least vote again. I think yeah, that's important. You know, I, I serve, I serve my time. I pay my debt to society. And um, from what I understand, there's a ballot coming up that they're going to try to restore our voting rights. So I'm hoping that that happens. Well, you'll have to keep me informed. Is this, is, this is a, a ballot initiative, a, the state of California or a national thing? Um, I believe it's um, the state of California. I, I'm not too sure, but um, my sister told me like two days ago. Okay. So, yeah, she was and telling me about it. And is this the sister who's the superintendent? Yeah, she's okay. She yeah, she's a very, very smart girl. <laughs> I'm very proud of her. She's got, you know, her Ph.D. in education. And um, I'm just so proud of her. You know, she's yeah. she's just doing everything, everything right. You she's both a great are. Girl. She's a great girl. Yeah. Oh, she's proud of me. She's like, man, she she loves it. She, yeah. she always encourages me to do the best I can. Well, and what I love about your story is that you had your moment of, you know what? All it takes is me to flip a switch. Make a decision to be different. Make a decision to make a change. And then it becomes every little micro decision after that. It's just every single decision becomes the most important decision. And you make a good one that feels good in your body. You're absolutely right. You know, it, it, when I started doing the right thing, I actually, used to, I actually would tell myself, man, I didn't know this felt so good. You know, because I was just so used to doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, the payoff is is great. I can't always say, you know, like you were always doing the wrong thing. It was like you were doing the right now thing. 
Yeah, that's that's where, that's a, that's a fair statement. Because you don't want people to feel like bad humans for making decisions, but when you're living unconsciously and you're just going through the motions, the decision is just a right now. Yeah. What's going to make me feel good? Yeah. Without definitely. thinking on a more conscious level what is going to make me feel good. Correct. And that that you know, I I um attribute that to I was a very impulsive person. You know, and that's why my decisions were the way they were because mm-hmm. I didn't think of consequences. Mm-hmm. We'll put it that way. You know, I just didn't think of consequences. Mm-hmm. Today I do, and um, it allows me to make sound choices. And counsel other people to do the same. It, yep, exactly. That's exactly what I do. I counsel people to make good choices. And, you know, I, I talk to them about the outcome of the good choices. It's great. You know, and I, 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 I tell them that from experience. Mm-hmm. And I know everyone's different, you know, and people, a lot of people are dealing with different issues, you know, internal issues. And I dealt with the same thing, but it wasn't until I was able to actually dig down deep and let that stuff out and actually mm-hmm. get vulnerable in front of a bunch of men. Yeah. You know, like who does that? You know what I mean? But it, it the worked The people for who me. are growing. The people who are growing. Exactly. You know, and but in that lifestyle I was living, that was like unheard of. And when I started but going still to these, powerful. it's powerful. I'm talking about when you're sitting in a group and you got a bunch of grown men and there's tears being shed. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's powerful because you're you're actually you're able to see the real person, the real person who's sitting in front of you, because it's the person who refuses to show those emotions. That's not them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And that one, when you finally do see them, it's like, that's that hurt, broken, four or five-year-old little boy, you exactly. know? And so how can you not sit there and feel for and love the other person when you're like, oh, I see me right there just like I see you? That's how it works. That's how it works. You have a group of men who were broken and they're repairing themselves together. Mm-hmm. They're repairing themselves. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I witnessed some really, really um, miraculous changes in some really, some people, who, you know, some guys, friends of mine who were, they were, they were tough guys, you know? Yeah. And well, that was who they said they were. <laughs> and yeah, I, right. I used to say the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, I just, Today, I'm like, I'm just a powder puff, you know? <laughs> hey, I don't have a problem with that Yeah, at all. So that's that's who I am. Yeah. I'm a well, caring. I like, you know, I care about I'm people. I'm a lover, I'm not a fighter. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the prison experience. So, you know, in the beginning, early 80s, you're being served real food. I know from watching television programs that the prisoners clean the bathrooms and and do the cooking and, you know, kitchen duty and all that stuff. I've heard that there is food that is served to prisoners that is that goes into dog food that supposedly says not for human consumption on it. You know what? When I worked in the kitchen, I worked in the 80s and we had real food. And I never worked in the kitchen after that. Like when 
this my last um, 30 something years in, but I had a lot of friends who worked in there and they used to tell me, hey, some of this stuff says not for human consumption. I was like, what? They were like, yeah. I was like, wow. So when you have stew, you were basically eating dog food. It's a possibility. I, I believe so. Yeah, I would go to myself, I would go to the commissary and I would buy food from the commissary, canned goods. And I was one of the fortunate ones who was able to do that because not everybody's able to do that. And that's because your family contributed money to your bank or how um, did that Yeah, work? my family, you know, my family would, if I needed money, they would be like, would put some money on your on your trust account to enable me to go to the canteen. So I was fortunate. And I, and I also had jobs in there where I would get a, my big pay number was 65 cents an hour. <laughs> Six, that's That was at your, at the height of your work after 30 years of being an indentured servant, you got paid 65 cents an hour. My last pay number for doing what I do today, drug and alcohol counseling, I was making 65 cents an hour. Wow. And they were taking 55% of my um, income because I owed restitution. So I would probably get like at the end of the month, maybe like $20, $21. Wow. So you didn't eat the dog food from the cafeteria. You go to the commissary. And then what are they charging you for like those raviolis that you just bought? Yeah, they charge um, like for a canned good. I would say for a can of beans, it was a dollar fifty or a dollar seventy five for a can, maybe like a eight ounce can. Yeah, regular can. Of and beans. Um, roast beef, a can of roast beef was um, two seventy five, close to three dollars. So I'm making twenty dollars. You know, fortunately, I had you know assistance from my family because if not. I would, have, eat I would have been stuck in the um in the mess hall eating with everybody else. Yeah. So, you know, I was fortunate. Wow. And I used to draw, you know, I draw, so I would make cards and sell cards too and for commissary. That was another one of my hustles. Mm -hmm. So I would just draw and I'd make, you know, 10 cards a week. So and sell them for $2 a piece. So that's 20 bucks. I'd make more making cards than I would at my job. Look at you. I like that. Yeah. So that was something I always had to do. And, you know, I used to tattoo also. That was before I changed my ways. Okay. So I quit doing tattooing because it's illegal. And I was, my, my goal was to get out of prison. And if you get a write-up, if they give you, a, it's called a 115. If they give you a 115, then when you go in front of the border prison terms, they're like, well, you got a 115 for tattooing, Mr. Mora, so we're going to give you a five-year denial today. So come back in five years. Yeah, so, tattoos are not that important. No, they're not that important at all. So when I did decide to, you know, change my thinking process, that was one of the things that I said, no more goofing around because I can't get a write-up. Mm -hmm. If I want to get out of here, there can't be no disciplinary action on, on my behalf. Yeah. So I did that. I did that for um, six and a half years. And that was, that was something new for me. Yeah. I mean, that's like you quitting cold turkey. Well, I guess that six months that you were in the, in solitary, did you go through withdrawals during that time? And then that's why whenever you got out, it was just easier to do it. You know, for the first two weeks I was in um, administrative segregation, um, I 
was going through withdrawals and kicking heroin is it's 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 painful it's it's a physical addiction and um you know you go through it's it's not comfortable put it that way so once i got over that and i knew that i was going to do something different so i started working out exercising trying to you know get my body you know back in shape and mm-hmm. you know physically fit doing what's good for me put it that way cuz i didn't want to go through that i didn't want to ever go through that feeling yeah. again cuz it's a nasty feeling to go through withdrawals from yeah. heroin and the funny thing is is i went through it like hundreds of times during my addiction by you know not having it for a week or so and i would have to kick mm-hmm. and um so you end it's, up, you just, you're always feeling bad. It's just low energy all the time. All the time. It's like, you just feel like, you feel like crap. The ice to feel like crap. And once and I got- can you some, believe that this shit has had like a surge and it's like a, a renaissance of heroin? Yeah, that amazes me. You know, I have a lot of clients who, you know, that's what they do. That's what they do. That's why they're at the, the clinic. Yeah. To get- assistance with for their opioid addiction and a lot of them don't quit they just stack you know the methadone on top of the heroin so they they come for help but because they know they'll at least get methadone but if they can't get the heroin i believe that's that's their logic yeah and that's got to be hard to be there and witness and you know they need somebody that's there for them but to know that they're in that loop that you were in for so many years of your life I bet that's hard to see it is hard to see you know and that's why I believe I know that's why I do what I do because if I could help one person get out of that lifestyle that's going to be a good thing yeah. And I've I have a I have a couple clients that have actually stopped using. They're just doing methadone and my my goal is to get them away from that also. Yeah. You know, get them away from that also. And that's my ultimate goal and I'm hoping that it happens. Good for you for doing your part. Let's see, is there anything about your experience that you really want people to know about what it's like being in prison because I you know this is kind of the first of a series of shows that we're doing and I'm going to be talking about cannabis as it relates to criminal justice okay you know there are people that have smoked a joint or you know been caught with you know a quarter ounce of pot on them and ended up going to prison for 10 or 12 years or something. And when you just think about that, it's like, wow, that's crazy. But if you've heard somebody's story about what their life was like behind bars for 32 years, and then you rethink about that person that's experiencing that because they smoked weed, I think it gives you that kind of mind explosion. So I want to understand really clearly what your life was like so that we can then talk about the ridiculousness of what's happening right now. My life in prison, it was not it was not a good life. I'm going to put it that way. It was not 
a comfortable place to be. You really can't live your own life. As far as myself, I'd never lived my own life in prison because I was involved in a lot of, you know, with gangs, drugs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have a hierarchy in prison. And basically, you're not living your own life. Not only are you behind bars, but then you're also under... Authority of somebody else. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, they tell you, hey, this has to happen, then this has to happen. Or else you might end up... You're the one that thing that has to happen. Then, yeah, you're going to be what has to happen. (laughs) Precisely, yeah. So that's the way it works in there. And it's not a good place, you know. And I, I just would definitely tell anybody who is... You know, flirting with the flirting idea, with that, the prison idea cool. that prison is cool. <laughs> um, you need to get your head out your ass because it's not. So let's talk about the indentured servitude. You know, there are major companies in this country that have their products manufactured by prisoners. Oh, yes, there so is. So I want to, I want, let's talk about that. So I'll tell you one thing. I also went through um, optical training in there, and they have optical labs in there. They make eyeglasses, and they might make eyeglasses for Walmart. They make eyeglasses for Pearl Vision. You know, Medi-Cal pays prisoners to make eyeglasses. Well, they pay the state, which is called Prison Industry Authority. They pay them, and whatever they're paying them, I don't know, but I know that the inmate who's making the glasses gets peanuts. Yeah. That's the optical illusion, if you will, Yeah, is that, well, these companies are putting these prisoners to work. They're giving them jobs, but it's slave wages. Slave wages. They're actually just scamming the system and commoditizing humans. Precisely. You know, the, the, um, Prison system, you know, they got, they privatized the prison system and it's on the stock market. You know, you could invest in it and, um, it's, it's, it's a Mm moneymaker. They, they turned it into a moneymaker. That's, that's just the bottom line. And I have friends in there who used to work in metal fab and they did work for Caltrans, you know, they would build, um, snow plows and, you know, this stuff is it's it's um, labor intensive. It's labor intensive. Yeah, they're they're working. They're you know they're welding. They're working and they're getting top a dollar an hour. You yeah, know? and so where does it start? So you said you topped out at sixty five cents as a counselor, drug and alcohol counselor. Where where does it start? It starts. It used to start at twenty five. They they actually gave us a um a raise a cost of living raise. Now they start at thirty. Wow. 30 cents an hour. That's where you start to work in prison industry authority. 30 cents an hour, and you could go up as high as a dollar five, and that's if you're the lead man to the that department. You're basically the CEO of the in-prison system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And everybody's um, vying for that position. So, you know, sometimes yeah. it's not a safe position to have. Right? That's cutthroat, quite literally. Yeah. Yikes. What are there any other big industries that you can think about that? Well, they used to have a, um, they used to have, I'm not sure if they still have it. It was called Joint Venture. And when I was in um, Donovan State Prison in San Diego, they used to um, manufacture um, pub, the, the pubs to make, um, make beer. 
the, the kegs, the big vats, no, the huge vats that they oh, that those, they make. Okay, them big stainless steel vats. Yeah, like they have in wineries too. Yeah, okay. they used to manufacture those, and um, it was called joint venture, and they would actually pay at that time. I think minimum wage was. This was in '96. I don't know what minimum wage was, but they would pay a minimum wage, but they split the money three. They would have to put a third of it in a savings account. A third went to their trust account and the other third went to, um, they had to buy their own toilet paper and, you know, it went to a different account. So they would make them basically support themselves in prison. In a way, I believe it was good, but I know that they were, you know, it's still exploitation because mm -hmm. to manufacture those types of um, products, I know it's people get paid really good money to do that. Yeah. The welders, you oh, know, yeah. you, you have to be a specialized welder to do that. Mm -hmm. Welders you, make a lot of money. They make, they make a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, in 1994, the Clinton crime bill, that's when that three strikes you're out. And so there was all of a sudden this influx of people coming to spend life in prison with no parole. And, and that's when it went from being... Um, these individual cell situations to these like giant warehouses warehouses yeah with just beds warehouse and... so were you ever in one of those situations um, yeah i was i was um living in a in a dorm that's designed for four people i think six at the most there was 20 guys in that dorm and they had they're called racks the bunks they were triple racks so you had three people on one rack. Oh my God. So the person on top, how close were you to the ceiling? So the person on top was pretty close to the ceiling. He, really, to be honest with you, the top bunk was the best bunk because you were actually able to sit up. The one in the middle, you can't sit up. The one at the bottom, you can't sit up. It's just like a little coffin. I'd be afraid somebody would like two rows up would just come down and crush me. <laughs> yeah, it was bad terrible they they utilized all the gymnasiums there was no more gymnasiums so there was no indoor basketball none of that anymore every gym in the state of california had inmates in there everything just turned into housing everything turned into housing and in housing units that were all cells you had a day room out in the you know outside of the cells they had day rooms well there was bunks in there too so they they pretty much um utilized every spot they could to house so you're just all over each other yeah. and there's i just can't imagine anything but negativity swirling like a bunch of angry people on top of each other you're absolutely right and i you know unfortunately i witnessed some people get their lives taken in those situations because there's bunks everywhere the correction officers can't see through the, you know mm -hmm. the blind spots and you know i've I know, you know, a few individuals who got their life taken mm -hmm. because of the overcrowdedness, because they weren't able to see them. They were, you know, they, they couldn't do nothing for them. What about the treatment by the correctional officers? Like, is the relationship as bad as it seems when you're, you know, watching a TV show? It depends. Just like there's, I'll say, ignorant people everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's ignorant people in, that wear a uniform inside prison. but don't get me wrong. There's a lot of decent correctional officers who I, you know, talk to and they were decent individuals. Mm -hmm. They were decent human beings. 
but at the same time, you're dealing with a with the organization who, if you try to go against, like if you work there and you try to speak up for an inmate, then you're going to be ostracized and you're not going to be happy, right? They're going to make their life miserable. They're in their own prison. Exactly. Shit. Yeah, exactly. You know, in the 90s, they were actually pitting inmates against each other in, in the shoe in Corcoran. And um, they would put them out there, rival gangs, and they would shoot them. And they killed a lot of guys out there in those yards. It was an organized thing, and they would make bets. And um, one officer, you know, was, they say he was a Christian man, and he he just couldn't take it. And he, he, he turned them in. Uh-huh. And they had a big investigation, and, um, you know, it went to the federal level, and it was it was it was wild it was something so when i just want to make sure i understand this so two rival gang members go in and it's like they fight to the death or a guard just shoots, shoots both them. of them as soon as they start contact as soon as they make contact with each other they would shoot so them so it was just a way to it was just kill a, these yeah, people yeah yeah and it, it was it's well known it's well known that it was happening and um a lot of them they went to court for it they got arrested for it and um unfortunately none of them got convicted but that's what happened in the 90s that's what that's what was going on in Corcoran State Prison people were being killed and yeah. which city is that one in that's in Corcoran California oh, yeah see, yeah i'm not a native i didn't know <laughs> yeah 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 but a lot of a lot of bad stuff goes on in there you know inmates correctional officer it's yeah you know it's not a good place yeah so like i said the person who thinks that it's good or just you know like you said flirting with that idea think twice yeah well and you know and it was also during this i think they call it the omnibus crime bill of those mandatory minimums which some of my friends in the cannabis space were victims of the mandatory minimums where the authority is taken away from the judges and put into the hands of prosecutors. Yeah. And so, you know, the three strikes you're out rule, it piled people in prison, this mandatory minimum made sure they stayed there longer. Then there were 60 new capital punishment sentences that were created. And so now there's more laws to break, so to speak. Yeah. And all of this money starts getting funneled in, but it's just to create more prisons. And so it was like the Wild West out in the middle of nowhere in these, you know, big compounds where nobody sees what the hell's going on. Absolutely nobody. For them, that was the beauty of it. They were able to get away with a lot of stuff because nobody could come in. They were, you know, nobody was allowed to come in and investigate. And if they did... You know, it was a lot of stuff was just shoved underneath the rug. Yeah. You know? Or they accidentally committed suicide or something. Yeah. A lot of that stuff went on. You know, I have a lot of, I have a, 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 a good handful of friends who um, are serving a life sentence for the three strikes law, you know, and um, before they even go to board, they have to serve 25 years. You're not even eligible for parole until after 20, you know, the, on the 25th year, you'll go to board. And they'll decide your fate. And to me, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, I have a couple friends who um, were in prison doing doing a, doing time, 
and they got caught. One of them got caught with the syringe and he went to court and they gave him life in prison. They struck him out for possession of a syringe in prison. He got 25 to life. Wow. So that's, that's an eye opener. That's an eye opener. It's like, okay. Well, and just, you know, you even telling me about the, the process of like filing the paperwork to get something going and the fact that I think yours was to have a review or something yeah. and you, you fill out that paperwork, you submit it and it takes like what, nine months before somebody looks at the paperwork and then, you know, another six months before they schedule you. So then all of a sudden now you've, it's been a year and a half later yeah. to get your appointment scheduled. Yeah. It's there, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in there. Like they have a process called the 602 process. If you have a grievance to file, you file a 602, but they don't go nowhere. You know, it's yeah, like, oh, they go into a paper shredder. <laughs> pretty much. Some, some of them go through. A lot of them don't. Prison is a corrupt place and that's on both ends. Yeah. It's on both ends. But you know, when you're in there, that's what you're up against. You're up against both ends. I actually, because I was involved in the drug trade in there, I actually had correctional officer, officers who used to bring me the drugs. If you have money, you basically could buy what you want. Every two weeks, I would have a correctional officer bring me X amount of drugs, which was heroin, crystal meth, and bud. So how, how do people smoke cannabis without... Um, being detected by the smell in prison? Um, very carefully, but you know, a lot of times the correction officers didn't care. They would say, take that stuff to the yard. Don't be smoking it in my building. You know, stuff like that. People mm -hmm. would smoke it in the bathroom. and So they didn't care until they cared. Yeah, until they cared, precisely, yeah. But it was, it, it's, that place is um, something. You know, they would bring telephones in sell them for ridiculous prices. They would pay 20 bucks out here on the streets for a track phone, buy 10 of them, take them inside the prison and sell them from five to $800 a piece. So there was a lot of money being made in there, a lot. Mm -hmm. And this was being made by the correctional officers and the, and the inmates also, they were making their share also. But it's just the corruption in there that goes on on both sides of the fence. You know, so it's like, so when you would get these drug shipments in, where did you store all all the loot? Um, it all depended. Like I would, I had a few individuals I used to trust, work with. We'd work together, so they would hold some of it. I would hold some of it, and a lot of times we would take it back to the um, where we worked. And there's places back where we worked where you could put, you know, put stuff away. You'd find good hiding. We'd find a good hiding place, and. Um, you know, I don't want to be too explicit, but a lot of times people would shove it up their ass. You know, I'll just be straight up. You know, yeah, you well, have, that's what we see on TV. That's yeah, what we assume it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, you know, a lot of times, you know, they would just wrap it up and... Yeah, keister it. Keister it, yeah. They called it putting it in the vault. That was, you know, yeah. one of the, that was one of the um, terms. Mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of people would just keep it on themselves. You saying, talking about 
having hiding places for different stuff. You know, what about, did people have hiding places for like good things that they were hiding, like, you know, a secret garden or, or, you know, a pet mouse or. (laughs) You know, people had a lot of pets in there. You would be surprised. There was, people would make a pet out of pretty much anything. You know, there was some prisons I've been to where there was a lot of lizards. So people would actually catch lizards and, um, their little, their, their little entertainment was going to catch the flies to feed to the lizard mm-hmm. or they would catch little mice and keep them. I knew a couple of people who had praying mantises and they would get them and feed them flies and they would sit there and watch them eat them. You know, that was their entertainment. But yeah, yeah there was a lot of stuff like that going snakes. People, you know, pretty much kept whatever kind of animal they could catch. Yeah. And they would keep it, make a little box for it. And, and was that stuff illegal to have too? So you have to hide your You pets? couldn't have it legally, but a lot of times the correction officers would just look past it because there was a lot of other stuff going on in there that, you know, they were like, who cares about a lizard? You know, who cares about a praying mantis? Yeah, you know I what agree. I mean? So they would overlook a lot of that stuff. But there was some who would be like, I'm taking your lizard. You know what yeah. I mean? And some asshole took Some asshole lizard. took my lizard, you know? And yeah, a lot of stuff like that. What's the craziest shit you ever saw there? Wow. Man, I seen a lot of crazy shit. I seen a lot of crazy shit. Violence-wise, you know, I've seen people murdered. I've seen people killed, you know. And it's not a good sight because it's brutal. It's it's a brutal way to die. Well, and then also if I saw it, then there's that. Yeah. That now I'm a witness. Now to I'm this a witness. Thing. Exactly. Now I'm a witness. Yeah. It's it's um it's a stressful place. I'll put it that way. It's a stressful place. But I've seen some pretty crazy stuff happen. You know, I've actually been where, you know, somebody was thrown off the tier. Off the third tier. In a fight, someone got Somebody, tossed off. Yeah, they got tossed off the third tier and they, you know, they, they died. You know, they let you're 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 falling three stories on the You hope concrete. you die. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen some stuff, some really terrible stuff. I've seen people get shot by correctional officers and um it's not a good thing. Being involved in riots and you know, they, they have this little thing, get down, get down. They'll follow, they'll, they'll fire a warning shot, but a lot of times it's not a warning shot. They're trying to, they're going to shoot somebody. So when you hear that gun go off, it's a mini 14 high powered rifle. When you hear that gun go off, you're just hoping that bullet ain't coming to you. And, um, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. When the protests were happening and then the the rioting and looting started happening here, did you have any PTSD? What what happened with you? How'd you handle all that? I stood in. I stood in because um I did I just didn't wanna um I didn't want to witness any of that. So I stood in. You um, oh you stayed in. I stood okay. in my Got in it. my place. I was okay. like, I'm not going out because I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I just, I chose just to stay in mm-hmm. because, um, for one, I'm on parole and to be out there, that wouldn't be safe for me. I know that for a fact. So I made the choice, like I make good choices today. Mm-hmm. That was a, 
I believe that was <laughs> yeah. a really good choice. I believe you're Stay right. Stay in. So mm-hmm. I stood in. Yeah. You know, yeah. I couldn't. And I, I think about it, and I don't agree with the, the way that happens, you know, because a lot of people get hurt that have nothing to do with the the situation. You know, innocent people lose their businesses, and I don't agree with that. You know, there has to be a better way to get the message out than destroying your own neighborhood. Yeah. Love is. As my sister tells me all the time, love is and everything else isn't. I like that saying. I do too. I like that saying. And, you know, when I'm having an altercation with someone or somebody's coming at me and, you know, I've had a couple of work situations lately where I am on the receiving end of an ass chewing. Of and, some bullshit. And, you know, and you you want to turn around and lash out and defend yourself or whatever. And the hardest thing in the world to do is to stand there and listen and breathe and try to figure out what their perspective is. Why, why is this happening? What has happened to them? That's really fucking hard to do when all you want to do is defend yourself. It's hard. And you know what, Joanna? It's something because um, I practice that every day. And there was a time when I would never even think of allowing somebody to talk to me in a certain way, right? Today, I just tell myself, you know what? They're going through something and it isn't about me. It's about them. And I I leave it like that. I say, and it makes it really easy for me to be humble and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, Yeah. you're right. You know, and I, I I just humble myself and it makes it so much easier for me to just get through situations like that mm-hmm. because I believe me, I've encountered some, some situations since I've been out and that's how I dealt with them. Yeah. And a lot of times I noticed, well, really every time I found myself in, in a situation like that, the person didn't know how to act because they're expecting a response. Yeah. A heightened response. Yeah. And they get something different and they're like, it just like kills their whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes the wind out of their sails. It takes the wind out of their sails. Um, you know, and my mom, she and I were talking about this and, you know, and she gave me an example of a time where, you know, she knew she was about to lose her job. And she was like, I know that they're going to expect me to be upset and hysterical and and want an explanation or whatever and she's just like you know it's a sales gig i wasn't i wasn't hitting their numbers and you know it is what it is it and is what it is she made a conscious decision that when she went in there that she was going to be so gracious and thank them for the opportunity and you know let them know it must be so hard for you to be in this situation i'm so sorry for you having to do this. And she was like, they had to pick their jaws up off That's the ground. That's funny, yeah. Like that because... didn't got, not go anything the way they thought it yeah, would. Yeah, of course. And there's power in disarming people there's that way. There's power in that. When you, do, when, you, when you come across like that, I found out when you come across like that, it just takes, like you said, it takes the wind out of people's sails. They don't know how to 
respond to that. And I also think it's such a wonderful example for them to see that there is another way to react. Yeah, there is another way to react. And I believe reacting in that way is the best way. Well, that's where we see the most positive results of our actions is when we come at it cool-headed, collected, and gracious and kind and humble and with love. Yep. And, you know, there are people sometimes where I am definitely not in a loving mood with them, but it sure makes all the difference in the world to love them anyway. Yeah, of course. Because what is it going to do for you if you don't? It feels terrible. It just hurts you. Yeah. I always talk all the time, like, you know, we got to keep our vibration up and like, you know, meditation is so important and all of these things. And, you know, to imagine a life where I never feel safe, like not when I'm sleeping, not when I'm taking a shower, not when I'm going to the bathroom, not when I'm cutting my food, looking down at my plate at lunch, like to never feel safe and to not be sure if you can trust someone. Like that to me, that is hell. It is. You're absolutely right. Because a lot of times when something happens in prison, you know, violence, it's a lot of times it's your best friends who you think are your best friends who are doing these things to you. You know, it's like when you're involved in that lifestyle and any little thing that happens that you may do that it's frowned upon, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to have the guys that you hang out with, they're going to be right there with you, you know, hey, well, you know, making you feel comfortable. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've been involved in it. And they're the ones who victimize you. Mm -hmm. So it's like, There's no trust. I'll put it that way. And it's a scary place. It is a scary place to be, to have to watch your back all the time. And then at night, if you're in a cell with another individual, you know, you don't, you never know what that individual's thinking, or he never knows what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Everybody's always on edge. Everyone's on edge. So you can't, I know I was never comfortable. Yeah. You know, in prison. I was never comfortable. I just can't. I just don't understand why I stood there so long. It was just these bad choices. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I stood loaded. And and I stood loaded for a reason because it would take me away from it would it would alleviate a lot of that mm-hmm. stress. Yeah. A lot of that stress, a lot of those fears, they would go away. And that was my relief. Yeah. Well, and it's just, you look up one day and it's been 30 something years later and you're like, wow, I'm past middle age and my life is a hazy blur. Is that really all that I want? Is that all there is? And so I think you made a wise decision, Lorenzo. I know I did. (laughs) I know I did. So tell me what that transition was like leaving prison when you finally were like holy shit I get to leave here that was a trip that was a trip and it was it was like an hour and a half process and um when I got to the last stage of release and I was at this window and they were asking me what's your name 
what prison were you in in this year? You know, just all these questions that only I would know. And I'm like, man, this, this shit is real. I'm getting ready to step out of these gates right now. It was a trip. And I knew that I was heading to a world that was not the same. So how, yeah, so tell me the age when you went in and then the age when you're leaving just for context. Okay, because I went, I had been to prison three times. So the first time I went to prison, I had just turned 21. Okay. Okay, I got out. I stood out two months, went back, got out again, stood out one week, and I ended up committing the crime I did 32 years for. So basically, we could say I was 21 years old when I went in. I got out. I was 55 years old. And the world changed drastically. So it was it was it was a very emotional ride for me. My sister and my mother were waiting for me, and it was it was waterworks. (laughs) Believe that (laughs) it was waterworks. So and you know I I I still remember the ride home. I'm like, my sister's driving, and I trust my sister to drive me. But I was like, my feet were like plastered to the to the floor because I was. You hadn't like, been in a car. I hadn't been in a car. It was it was it was a it was a weird experience. Wow. Everything was weird. Every, I mean, everything was weird. Just. I bet it was sensory overload too. It was, and just with the color because you know you're just used to seeing the same monotone stuff. Yeah, I told my mom and them. Cause they were like, okay, we're going to get you some clothes. Like, just don't get me no jeans, <laughs> no jeans and no blue shirts because I've been wearing those for 30 some odd years and I'm, I'm not wearing that no more. Yeah. You know, I wear them today, you know, some faded jeans, uh-huh. but they're nothing like the stuff I wore in there. And in the stuff I wore in there today, they make them with, with the logo on them says CDCR prisoner. So you know where you're at. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, man, I don't want to see that ever again. What was your first meal when you got out? My first meal was In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, you know what? You know what it was? I told my mom, I want some McDonald's fries because I remember McDonald's fries. I always liked them. So we stopped at McDonald's and I go, just get me an order of fries. That's it. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't even want to go in. the. I didn't want to go in McDonald's because I was still like, culture shock yeah i was like man i don't want to get out of this car i feel safe in here yeah so they went and got them for me and i had to i had to adjust i had to adjust it was for the first month and a half i was out it was a big adjustment i was like wow so you got mcdonald's french fries and then went and sat in a long ass line in and out burger to get a burger (laughs) yeah you know what i have to say in and out burgers french fries are shitty so that was actually a really good decision yeah, and then after that, well, when we got home, my mom made me a homemade meal. Of course, you know she makes yeah. some really good Mexican food, and um, she made me some um, enchiladas, beans, rice, and um, yeah, it was good. Nice. She made me a really good meal, and I'll be going back home on um, in September for Labor Day, and I'll be able to experience some more good food. Yeah, so tell me what that what it looks like on the other side now. So are you? Um, on a probation and you have to live in a certain city because you're not in the same city with your family right now. Yeah, that was a thing. When I went to a parole board, um, because I had been to prison twice before and paroled it to Los Angeles and was not successful on parole, 
they were real um, hesitant. hesitant about allowing me to go back to LA. So I went to board in um, 2017 and um, I was doing really well. I was, you know, going through my training to be a drug and alcohol counselor. And the, the, the panel I went in front of, they were, they told me, look, you're doing everything you need to do. Mm-hmm. Keep doing what you're doing. But they gave me a three-year denial. They said, because we want you to get some different parole plans because to parole back to LA, we don't think it'd be a good idea because my plans were to LA. Mm-hmm. So they gave me, they actually gave me three year denial for that. And I'm like, um, that would have taken me like 30 minutes to revamp my plan, be like, um, hold please. Yeah. But three years later. Yeah. So, and geez. there's a process they have now. They gave me an automatic review, which means in 11 months, they, the Board of Prison Terms reviewed my case again. And they gave me an automatic review, which was um, I went back to board in 19 months. 19 months is and, automatic? Yeah. Got so, it. Copy okay, that. yeah. So it took, it. well, really, I went back in, yeah, 19 months, and they gave me a parole date because I changed my parole plans mm-hmm. to Northern California. And um, there were some other things. I'll be honest with you, because I was doing what I needed to do, mm-hmm. and that's what they expect. They want a person, because I believe... I actually, today I put myself in their shoes and um, if I'm going to sign a paper to allow an individual to get out of prison who's spent his whole life in prison and was, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't the best person in the world, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm making a good choice. Yeah, I appreciate so that. I want to, you know, I, I, I put myself in their shoes and, and, and I was doing the right thing and the board member who found me suitable, he told me, he said, I know you're genuine. You actually showed a lot of emotion in here. And, you know, we know you're genuine. We know you changed your life and we're going to allow you to go home. So that was, that was another waterworks moment. Yeah. <laughs> that was that, another- at that point that may have been your happiest day of your life. Yeah. It was, I call it my new birthday. Aww. Yep. Nice. Yep. April 23rd. That was like, a rebirth for me day because I knew I was coming home. Yeah. So it was, it was 94 days later. Cause it's a process. Even when they find you suitable, mm-hmm. you still have to go through a process and the governor has to approve it. So I had to wait on pins and needles because he could still reverse it. So, and if something were to happen in between that, the day you got found suitable and the 90 day in the mark, you know, when they mm-hmm. decide to let right. you go, well, that's, it's it's over with. It's a wrap. So that whole of not being able to trust anyone around you and just being like, oh, please, nobody yeah. fuck with me for 94 yeah, days. Yeah, for 94 days. Exactly. What I did in those 94 days, I went straight to work in the SAP program, substance abuse program. And when I got off work, I went straight back to my cell. And I did my program like that. I watched TV, wrote, drew. And I just occupied my time like that because I was like, I'm not going to allow anybody to take what I got. Because there's individuals who are envious Mm -hmm. and they tell you, don't tell anybody you got a parole date. But for some reason, everybody seems to know because, you know, the correctional officers work in there and they like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was in here today. He got found suitable. And then it just goes down the grapevine. So it's no secret. You can't keep it a secret. They know. So I just I just did my best to just keep myself safe and 
I knew it wasn't going to be because something I did that was going to keep me there. Yeah. But I, I can't control the next man. So I just did what I needed to do for me. And um, I got out of there. Right on. I got out of there. I yeah. love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Do you have a, a shameless plug? Maybe, you know, a program that you're that you work with? Do y'all take donations? Is there how um, can we be you know, I work for um a organization called Larkin Street Youth Services and um we service the youth of um San Francisco, the homeless youth, and um they do accept donations. And um, they're a great organization. They do really good work, all kinds of different programs for them, work programs, um, you know, just, just a variety of stuff they have for them. And do they have programs for, like, you know, helping them either with, you know, getting their education or trying to get jobs or how to interview for a job or fill out a resume? Do they have people that do all that they stuff? They have all that. Awesome. They have all that. They they if If they want it, they have it for them. They'll, they'll, they'll walk them through the process. They'll teach them how to write a resume. They'll teach, they'll have mock interviews, job interviews. They have everything. And so when we talk about that, they accept donations, is it financial donations or do they need people that have like business clothes and, and bedding and towels? And yeah, we, we get a lot of donations. We get a lot of like hygiene stuff, toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorants, um, lotions. And is there something more that's needed or, or just all of that stuff is great? You know, all of that stuff, okay. anything is, anything is, is a good thing. You know, if, if somebody's willing to donate to Larkin Street Youth Services, um, it, it's, it's for a good cause. All right. Well, Lorenzo, thank you so much for your time and for helping me kick off this series to just take a deeper look into what's going on in our in our country and you know as far as social justice criminal justice like these things are very top of mind right now i mean you know i am actually when we get done today i'm going to go for a walk i'm just getting back into town and you know just walking to the post office, I saw all the boarded up windows at the federal building. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm just about to get out and go look around at what's actually yeah. happened. And I think I've seen a lot of, you know, colorful murals that have popped up. So I know the city's changed a lot since I've been gone. And, you know, I, I don't think that we all contribute to the cause in the same way. And I yeah. think... For me, as you know, a white girl that grew up out in the middle of nowhere, yeah. you know, I don't have a lot to offer to that conversation. You know, mine is more asking questions, being curious, and giving other people that do have something to say a platform. Thank you for allowing me to be here, for having me. I appreciate that very much. And thank you for my casually baked artwork. Hey, no problem. I'll see you in the park. I hope Lorenzo inspires you to disrupt those old narratives and drop preconceived notions of the people who serve time in our federal prisons. The system is operating exactly as it was designed. And it isn't a Republican versus Democrat problem. It's a system that's been embraced by bad apples on both sides of the aisle, and it's working exactly as it was intended the control of and monetization of humans.
It's gone on my entire life, in every administration. Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs set the wheels in motion of the prison industrial complex. The Reagan era made the war a reality, and the 1994 Clinton crime bill was gasoline on the fire. The United States is the third largest nation with 4.25% of the global population. Yet, we house 25% of the world's prison population. There are currently about 2.2 million human beings in this country living in the conditions that Lorenzo described. And as we'll discuss on a future episode of the podcast, many of them are there for nonviolent cannabis-related crimes. Let that sink in as you consider the mountains of money the legal cannabis industry is generating in tax revenue for the very states still denying freedom to so many of these quote-unquote cannabis criminals. Someone recently posted on one of my social feeds that now is not the time or place to question authority slash conventional wisdom. I was told it isn't a time to do any digging of my own, and that instead it is a time to listen to the people who are quote-unquote experts in their field and follow their advice. I read this message over and over for a few minutes, and my mind kept going back to junior high and high school. I remember my amazing teachers who challenged me to question everything to never forget my history, and to be assured that when I do, I will be doomed to repeat it. And I have, but mostly in my dating life. (laughs) Instead of some dark and stormy demand, I instead encourage you to please stay curious, be mindful, and forever kind, my friend. And if you're picking up what I'm putting down, please rate and review Casually Baked the Podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Your voice helps amplify this highly responsible content. So if you don't mind, puff puff, pass it on. Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Arnav Gupta. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.